Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall, near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hands as it wrote, his face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed round his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king and the king said to him, Are you Daniel? One of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah. I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple, have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your Majesty, the Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendour. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged 
that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parsin. Here is what the words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar king of the Babylons was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Thank you, Lucy. Please keep your Bibles open at Daniel chapter 5, where we're going to spend our time now. In 1971, the greatest party in history was held. It lasted for three days, but it took over a year to prepare for it. The Shah of Persia, modern-day Iran, wanted to make a statement. So he invited the royalty and the greatest rulers and leaders of the world to the ruined city of Persepolis to celebrate the 2500th anniversary of the founding of the Persian Empire. He hired French architects and interior designers to build 50 grand tents for the royal visitors. These, this tent city used 37 kilometers of silk and took a year to construct. And next to it, they built an airfield and a thousand kilometer highway that ran from Persepolis to Tehran. Now, next to the ruins, they planted an entire forest next to the ruins and brought in 50,000 songbirds to create atmosphere. Within three days, the songbirds were dead from heat. The guests included the emperor of Ethiopia, Emperor Haile Selassie, whose dog never left his side in its diamond-studded collar. There was also the emperor of Japan, the vice president of the United States, kings, queens, sheikhs from the leading nations all around the world, including our own Duke of Edinburgh and the Princess Royal. Iranian military machines flew in 150 tonnes of the finest kitchen equipment from Paris to set up the kitchen. And the world's top restaurant, which was believed to be a restaurant called Maxim's, closed its doors for two weeks so that the whole staff could be involved in doing the catering and waiting. One of them later said, three days before the banquet, 18 tonnes of food arrived. 2,700 kilos of meat, 1,300 kilos of fowl and game, 30 kilos of caviar, and a lorry full of ice. Everything was flown in from Paris except the caviar. And this banquet was washed down with 2,000 bottles of some of the rarest wines known to humankind, with some 60-year-old champagne and 12,000 bottles of whiskey. 
<laughs> How much did it cost? Estimates range up to a billion Swiss francs. Now, what was the point of this great party? It was to make a statement about modern Iran's place in the world of power politics. The Shah chose the location because it was right by the tomb of Cyrus, the founder of the Persian Empire. And he made a speech in honour of Cyrus with his voice shaking with emotion. And the Shah, by the way, also declared himself to be the King of Kings and the Shadow of the Almighty. But within 10 years, the Shah had lost his kingdom and then his life. And everything that he dreamed of was lost. The Ayatollah Khomeini came to power. He turned the clock back and the party was over. Now that was just 50 years ago. But it connects us directly to the world of Daniel chapter 5 because not only is it in the same region, but it's all about power. This chapter is making some shrewd comments about the nature of power, and this is just as relevant today as it was 2,500 years ago when the book was written. We too live in a world where a small handful of people hold all the reins of power. Their decisions affect the lives of millions of innocent people, ordinary people for good or ill. Our world often seems to be out of control. We wonder if anyone's really in charge and if they know what they're doing. The global pandemic of 2020 has revealed, hasn't it, how much our world leaders struggle to do the right thing, to know what to do, and they seem to vacillate and oscillate between courses of action. I mean, I don't blame them in some ways. I wouldn't want to be the Prime Minister. Would you? But here's the question. Do we feel safe? Or is this world really totally out of control? And your life vulnerable like a piece of cork floating on top of the ocean? Let me summarise our chapter today with three points. The reality of power, the temptation of power and the source of power. The reality of power, the temptation of power and the source of power. Firstly, the reality of power. The book of Daniel acknowledges throughout the awesome power that human beings can wield. Just look back at verses 18 and 19 of our chapter. This is extraordinary. Daniel says to the king, Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Now these are attributes normally in the Bible only reserved for God himself. Sovereignty. God's the only sovereign in the Bible. Greatness, glory. God doesn't share his glory with another. Splendor. It, it, it's putting him in almost godlike terms. And it says that God gave that to him, to a pagan ruler. Verse 19 goes on and says this. Because of the high position that God gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. You see what's happening there? That power is godlike too. It's the power of life and death, the power of blessing or cursing over everyone under his rule. That too is godlike. Now that was Nebuchadnezzar. We've been looking at some of his life in the first four chapters of the book. And chapter five abruptly changes to a successor called Belshazzar. He may have been the son of Nebuchadnezzar or he may have actually been... Uh, a successor in another connection who's referred to as a son. But one way or another, he is currently in charge in Babylon. And at the start of chapter five, we find he's drunk with power. He throws a lavish banquet. 
and he summons the great and the good. It says he has a thousand guests and they drink the finest of wines and eat the finest of foods. All the while, disaster is just around the corner. This chapter is the last night of the Babylonian Empire. And as we saw earlier on in that interactive map, they were overwhelmed by the Medes and Persians shortly after this, led by Cyrus, the founder of the Persian Empire. But on this night, the king does something that would previously be thought to be unthinkable. He gives orders to bring in the silver and gold goblets that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the Jerusalem temple. Now this would be considered sacrilege because these gold and silver goblets were sacred to the people of Judah. They were sacred to the religion of worshipping God. And even a pagan would acknowledge that and take them with great care and put them in his temple. They weren't to be trifled with. Babylonians were very religious, very superstitious people. But this king thinks he can just do it because he has the power. And so they obey him and everybody drinks from them and fills them with wine and praises the gods of gold, silver, bronze and iron and wood and stone. Man-made DIY gods. These goblets were sacred to the one true God who hates the worship of idols. And now they are being used to toast and worship false gods. Now, what do we learn from this exercise in the reality of power? Firstly, it's that God has entrusted human beings with great influence and great power. It is real and God gives them great freedom to use in exercising it. And much of the time it looks as if God is on the losing side or he's neglectful or he's absent. It looked like that for Daniel and his friends back in their day. They were exiles, they were hundreds of miles from home, their country had been subjugated, their monarchy had been defeated never to rise again, their temple had been sacked and now their God is being humiliated with his sacred vessels being used for a booze up. Where is God now? Where is he now? I think this has a lot to say to the Christian believer who feels overwhelmed by powerful forces in their life. It might be your fears for the future or your fears for your family or your fears for your health, your finances. Powerful forces that seem just beyond your control. Other people have got power but not you. For some it might be people in your life who hold power over you and, and don't always use it to bless you. It could be senior people in your workplace or it could be people in your extended family. Where is God when you feel weak and powerless? Is he listening? We fear that it'll all continue to go wrong. And that after all, God really isn't in control or he's just not watching. And the Bible acknowledges that human beings do have real power and it can be terrifying. They are allowed to exercise it for a season and they can do great harm. But that is not the end of the story. Because now we move from the reality of power to the temptation of power, my second point. The temptation of power. This chapter also reveals not just the reality but the temptation that comes with power. Always goes hand in hand with it. And you know this story already because you've seen it 
dozens of times, maybe hundreds of times, in the lives of men and women who come to power. And this gets played out in TV dramas and films and around social media all the time. You know the old saying, it's a bit cliched, but, but it bears repeating. Power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And it's because power contains within it a deadly temptation to human beings. It deludes us into thinking that we are greater than we really are. That's the temptation. It delude, a, a delusion, a, a blinding, to think that we are greater than we really are. Just notice what it did to Belshazzar in this chapter. It made him lose his grip on reality. History reveals that the Persian armies were known to be closing in around the Babylonians like an iron vice. Cyrus was moving in for the kill. Yet what is Belshazzar doing at the beginning of the chapter? He gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Not the last person in history to avoid trouble by drinking wine. He's holding a party. And then he thinks that he can tread on the territory that belongs only to God. The Babylonians were religious people, superstitious people. Using the sacred vessels of the God of Judah at a party was risky, and blasphemous. Yet this king believed he was above the normal rules and he could do whatever he pleased. It's almost like he's playing chicken with God. And the God of the Bible is not to be trifled with. He's patient, but in the end his patience runs out. And notice that he does reply. In verse 5, he sends just a hand. Here it's what it is. And you know this phrase, the writing on the wall. This is where it comes from. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. Now, it seems that only the king saw the hand at this moment. It may have been in an alcove, which was clear to his view in the lamplight but others couldn't see it but he sees a hand in the bible when god appears in human form often it's referred to as a theophany by the uh, the scholars the theophany is a divine appearing and there have been various places in the old testament where god appears in a human form we've had a, a, a moment like that shortly before in daniel where a fourth human figure appeared in the fiery furnace with the three men who were thrown in and that's thought to be possibly a theophany. And here it's just a hand that appears and writes a simple message on the wall. What does it say? <laughs> the king can read it all right, but he can't understand it. And suddenly his courage drains away. He blanches. He turns pale. His body goes into the symptoms of extreme fear. Verse 6 says that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking together. I mean, that's, he's absolutely terrified. And he calls in the usual suspects, all the wise men and the astrologers and the, the enchanters and diviners. And he offers them this fantastic reward if they can decode the message on the wall. He will give them the third position in the kingdom and place a gold chain around their neck and dress them in royal purple. What a, what a reward. If only they can interpret this message. But nobody can. But there is hope, however. A woman, it's usually a woman who comes into situations like this and speaks some sense. A woman comes into the crisis and offers an olive branch. She's either the queen or could be the queen mum. 
She says, there is, calm down, dear, there is one who can read this. His name is Daniel. Now this Daniel, by this time, he could have been in, well into his 80s. He seems to have been sidelined by the current administration. Uh, but Daniel is still known by those who, who know the stories to have the spirit of God in him, giving him great wisdom. And he has intelligence and insight and outstanding wisdom. So the king summons him and of course he comes because you do what the king says. But notice the king still thinks he can call the shots with the usual terms of engagement. He offers Daniel the outstanding reward of the riches and the position and the gold chain and the, the outfit, which Daniel quickly and bluntly declines. Daniel knows you can't buy the word of God. It isn't for sale. And no true prophet will be influenced by money. In light of that, it's quite interesting that further on in verse 29, when the king hears the interpretation, he still gives him the reward. He doesn't listen. He still thinks he's in control. He still thinks he can appoint people to high position and give favours. He thinks it's in his gift to give riches and influence. But time's up and that very night he was killed. But this is the temptation of power. You sense it? It deludes people into thinking that they are greater and more in control than they really are and then they often make poor decisions as a result. People with power start to believe that the normal rules don't apply to them, that they can shape or bend reality, that normal morals don't apply to them, that they can act as little gods calling the shots in other people's lives. This chapter reveals power is real but also it's temptation that comes with it. Let me just ask where do you exercise power in your life? None of us tuning into this service is a, is a, a royal or a, a leader in that sense. But we all have some power, don't we? Power over other people. Perhaps it's social power because of your personal influence, your gifts for friendship, the way you can lead people. Perhaps it's power in your position in the workplace. You, you, you run... You teach, you have power over students or you, you have employees that work for you. Perhaps it's power in a family. There are other people in a family who look to you, who rely on you. You have some power. Are you tempted to think too highly of yourself? How do these verses help us to be humble before God? To make sure we're not going to be like a little Belshazzar. We've thought about the reality of power and its temptation. But finally, we're going to consider the real source of power, and that is the living God. Notice what the chapter says about God. Verses 18 and 19, speaking of the greatness of King Nebuchadnezzar, uses a little verb that's very significant. It says that the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and so on. And in verse 19, it says, because of the high position God gave him, all the nations and peoples dreaded him. See, the greatness of even the very great is only given. It's a gift from God, and it is given for a season on loan, and God will withdraw it when he sees fit. Now, there is something shocking about this in the context of the Bible, because Nebuchadnezzar was the man king who broke 
Judah, the last of the people of Israel. He was the one that defeated them, subjugated them and ended their monarchy. That was Nebuchadnezzar. And it's saying here that God gave him the power. You You see that? God permits and uses godless rulers for a season. And the next leader of a great empire, Cyrus, would even be referred to by the prophet Isaiah as the Lord's anointed, God's chosen king. See, God raises up kings, even pagan ones, for a season, and then he deposes them. He's referred to in verse 21 as the most high God, who is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Now, we may not understand God's choice of letting certain rulers and leaders exercise power in the world. But one thing we we can say for sure is that they're only in power because God has permitted it. And his purposes ultimately are for good. And so the grave warning that Daniel gives is found in verse 23. You, Belshazzar, did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand. The fingers that wrote on the wall. Those fingers carved a simple message. It could be found on an invoice from a merchant. It's a few words, four words, words of about weighing and weights of measures. Mene, mene, for emphasis, tekel, parsim. And Daniel interprets what this message means for the king. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. You've been weighed in the balance like a shekel and you've been found wanting and your kingdom is divided. Parsin from the word Perez is a wordplay on Persian and division. Your kingdom is divided between the Medes and the Persians. And so here we find the real source of human power is the living God. And this reference to God's fingers writing on the wall is very subtle and it reminds biblical readers of his power at the Exodus where he brought his people out of Egypt and through the wilderness and through the Red Sea into the promised land because it was God's fingers, his hands brought the plagues on Egypt right up until the plague of the firstborn. And his fingers at Mount Sinai wrote the law on tablets of stone, his word and guidance to his people, the Ten Commandments. In other words, The God, even of the apparently lost and broken people of the exile, is still the God of the Exodus, whose hand is powerful, whose finger writes and then moves on, and no one can resist his will. He determines the times and seasons for all peoples in every generation. Let me just finish where we started with that story about the Shah and about Iran. What does that story reveal about the king of heaven's power? Because after all, we don't just think that the Bible tells us stories from the past, but that God is still like this even today. How did it work out in the story of that incredible party and the rise to power of Khomeini just a decade later? Well, after that party of the century, the Shah was chased out of his country by Khomeini, who transformed the Persian Empire into an Islamic theocracy, one of the strictest and most intolerant in the world, Iran is now considered one of the top few most dangerous countries in the world to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So does it really look 
like the God of the Bible, is in control. Here's the twist in the tale. Persecution threatened to wipe out Iran's tiny church. They reckoned that in 1979 there were 500 Iranian Christians in Iran. Just 500. But now there are perhaps over a million Iranian believers, hundreds of thousands. And the Iranian church has become the fastest growing in the world, according to data released in 2016. The fastest growing church in the world that's influencing the whole Middle East region for Christ. All around the world, Iranians, wherever they go, are pressing in to find Jesus Christ and responding to him in humility because they find in Jesus forgiveness, mercy and love that endures forever. And wherever Iranians are, that's what they're doing. The most open to the gospel in the world is the people group of Iranians. And I've seen it with my own eyes right here in Manchester. Is God still in control? And does he still use his power in surprising and remarkable and unexpected ways? Now, what about you? Friends, this chapter came right after the story of Nebuchadnezzar, another king who had fabulous wealth and power, another king who considers himself the top of the world, another man who was full of pride, another man who received a warning from God but the difference between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar is that one of them humbled himself and was saved and the other hardened his heart and defied God and was ruined. Humble yourself before the true king of the world and you will be saved. Remain defiant and lose everything. And this is what I want to speak to you. I don't know where you are in your heart of hearts with the God of the Bible. I don't know if you're a person who's been brought up hearing the Christian faith from Sunday school teachers and parents or whether you're new to it and you're exploring it and you, you, you never knew about God before the last few weeks. I don't know where you are right now sitting there. But we too, every single one of us, one day will have our lives weighed in the balance on God's scales and we will all be found wanting. None of us will have lived the life of righteousness and goodness and moral beauty and perfection that God requires. We will all be found guilty of many, many sins of commission, things we've done, and omission, things we should have done but didn't. And how could it be otherwise if you're honest about your own record? My father worked in a bank in central Manchester when he was 16, many years ago. This was uh, when the bank balances were written in a huge ledger written in a beautiful ink so that uh, the, the credit and debit of everyone's account could be added up. And my father used to imagine that one day when he died, God would, would, would look at a big ledger and weigh up all the credit and debit in his life and conclude that basically he was quite a good chap and he would get into heaven. He'd be in credit. But the Bible tells us a totally different story about ourselves. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can tame it? Where are you today with this God? The Most High, the one who holds your life in his hand. Are you living in humility and love before him or are you locked into proud defiance? 
Friend, wake up. Today is the day of God's salvation. He's still patient with you. Don't defy him forever. Turn to him while he may be found. You might even want to pray with me as we pray together right now. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we need you to break into our lives and our world and turn some things upside down. We repent of the fact that often we live as though we are supreme and in charge and you're there to serve us. Forgive us, Lord, and help us to walk with you humbly, to love justice and to do right. And Father, please, if there's someone listening in who knows that they've defied you and they need to be made right with you, help them today to trust Jesus and to find in him the forgiveness and love that endures forever. Who else these things in Jesus' name? Amen.